Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. My dad is my hero. Always be there to take your call, and you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman-Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Part of the key of life is bridging the gap between older and younger generations. Today, we're speaking with Joshua Chris, who is the host of Bridge the Gap podcast. Son of a minister, he's weighing in on that today. Joshua Chris, welcome. What's up? Oh, my God. Can I tell you something so funny? Sure. Okay. I let my daughter do my makeup right before this. She literally finished at 5.59. And then I went and looked in the mirror and I'm like, oh my God, my daughter turned me into the devil and I have no time to wipe it off. I'm going to roll with it. It looks amazing. <laughs> I love it. Your your daughter has a bright future ahead of her. She just showed her friend that she wants to have a slumber party with for her birthday this weekend. She was like, what do you think? And she was like, it looks amazing. She's like, see, it looks amazing. I'm like, I'm going with it. This is so funny. I love it. It's great. Oh my gosh. So I heard, I went back and listened to the interview of you and Yitz. I'm going to give him a shout out here from the cool. Sniff Spotlight series. And I heard you say that you formed Salinity to be multi-generational. And I thought that that went really nice with the theme of my show. Awesome. Yeah. It's been a, it's been a minute since me and him had that show. That was a great time. Yeah. I really enjoyed the interview. You gave a lot of backstory of how you got into senior housing and how you wanted to change the perception of the industry and how you started your community. And I would love you to tell some of that story. Yeah. One thing also that you talked about was looking back at your career and life. I think you were 41 at the time. I don't know if you still are, but I think it's really interesting to reflect on where you thought you would be, where you are, what mistakes you've made, what wins you've had, you know, the good, bad, and the ugly. Let's talk about some of that. Oh gosh, there's lots of ugly in there. So, you know, brace yourself. Life is not easy, right? It's definitely a journey. Yeah. What, what was your childhood like? So my childhood was interesting. You know, I, in retrospect, I'm super blessed. I think I resented during my childhood. I, I didn't like a lot of it because we moved around a lot. So I was a minister's child. My dad was a pastor, a minister. And so we moved around a lot for that reason, uh, mostly in the southeastern United States. I was born in Dallas, but all my family is from Tennessee, all the southern states we lived. And so I'm 42. And all during my childhood, there was no such thing as cell phones. There was not the internet, not all the ways to keep in touch like kids do now. And so, you know, when you're young, the, your friends kind of mean the world to you and on the little league teams and things like that, that you get really involved in. And these relationships mean so much to you, you work hard for when you're just uprooted 
and you lose track. So that repeated over and over again. I began to get a little bit resentful in my high school years that are typically a little rebellious for all of us anyways. A little bit resentful of the moves and even towards my my father and my my mom for kind of forcing the moves, you know. And so that led to some pretty rough years in my latter high school, early college, where I had to learn some lessons the hard way, just kind of sowing some wild oats, but probably more than you wanted to know about my childhood. No, I'm interested in that because, you know, we've actually moved our kids once from a more religious school to a less religious school. And, you know, as we have another child who's getting ready to enter school in a couple of years, then you start thinking about maybe navigating things differently. And do we want to move our kids again? And like what you're saying, I'm like, the middle two are kind of happy and have adjusted to the move. And now we have one entering high school. And do you let your kids participate in that conversation? Or is it like, I'm the parent, you're going to do what I want? <laughs> well, you know, I, I wish I knew all the answers. I have three children right now, uh, currently between the ages of 13 and seven. So I definitely don't have it figured out. So any of your listeners that want to hand down their journals, if they've got it all figured out, I'd love to read those. But I don't know. I think it I think it can be a, a participation for sure, like having a discussion about it and kind of weighing that in. At the very least, we went through recently this very difficult situation of transitioning your children and transitioning three is really difficult at all different ages. And we've We've done the homeschooling, we've done the private schooling, and I would say, you know, our our kids were very apprehensive, to say the least, about moving and changing, but we didn't move towns, so it's a little bit different. When I was growing up, you lost complete contact, you know, you move three hours away or a state away and you just lose touch. Around here, even the school that our kids went to, which they're loving, by the way, you know, they're still in the same local ball teams. We, we see friends, we do sleepovers, we do all that kind of stuff. So it, it hasn't been as traumatic as what I would have remembered my childhood moves being for sure. Yeah, I feel like homeschooling, since we all had to kind of do that not by choice through the pandemic for at least some months, is now becoming more of an option and more of a thought amongst parents. I did a poll about that on LinkedIn, and I could not believe the response I got. Yeah, well, you know, a couple of things on that. We had a good experience. I mean, it wasn't for us long-term, not knocking homeschool. I was homeschooled some as, as a young child too. I hated it. It was, I would say, a lot different back then. Again, I'm talking like a really old guy now. But now they have all these cohorts, as they call them, and these things where the kids aren't really isolated just at their home. They get out and do activities and even rotate among houses of the cohort members and things like that. So there's a lot of social interaction. They even have their own sports leagues in some towns. So, you know, but I'll tell you through this, one of the things that we kind of have learned and come to the realization with is we as parents, we're going to have to take a little bit more responsibility in educating our children because I think so often we think, oh, the school system or this private school or wherever you choose, you kind of have a tendency just to kind of completely delegate that aspect, right? We're busy. We've got our careers. We pay tax dollars or we pay private. They should do that. And we kind of came to the realization during this that no matter where our kids ended up in school, we needed to take a more active role 
in educating them. And so I think coming to that realization has just kind of helped us to parent a little better, maybe, and also partner with the schools to kind of get involved and and help them in educating our children rather than just blame them for all the things that are wrong, I guess, I guess is part of the realization we came to. Yeah, I love that you just said, instead of blame them, partner with them, because I do feel like education is changing. And when you are spending private school dollars on education, I think that some parents feel that entitles them to explosions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, naturally. Yeah, like I'm a a paying customer here. Yeah, get this right. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, you know, every kid is different as I can attest to even in my own household, I feel like I've raised them all the same, but they all learn so differently. They all communicate, they all feel differently. And so I can't imagine the difficulty our school systems have in not only educating at all those different levels, but my gosh, if it's anything like senior living, I'll tell you our our issues are typically not with our residents who are like our, our customers, you know, our clients. It's actually the adult sons and daughters. It's the family members, right? So I would imagine probably in the school systems, half the time, the, the challenge is dealing with the parents and, and, and the, the kids are maybe not even as much the issue. Okay. So I love that you transitioned to that. And I would love you to talk about the vision behind Salinity and the relationships that you're forming with multi-generations. Yeah, so we're trying. So, you know, it's been a progression for me about 17 years in the industry. I I didn't have a, a background, so to speak. I wasn't educated in healthcare or educated in senior living. Long story how I landed in it, that I'll spare you. But essentially going in and, and starting at the bottom of the workforce and the senior living communities and working alongside the caregivers and the dining departments and the housekeepers and administration and maintenance. And I got a really firsthand look at what these residents go through on a daily basis. And long before COVID, I would say our industry really had struggled in many ways here in the U.S. anyways with isolation. You know, you've heard that a lot through COVID about all the things, but you know, this whole principle in the U.S. that we kind of refer to as retirement, it's something that we long for. Now I think of how my grandparents and many others that I know of that kind of greatest generation retired, they worked their whole lives to retire. And many of them, it was like, for what? And because it's like they stopped doing so often all the things that they lived and worked for their entire life. And so it's not always the case, but this principle of retirement, I think has been somewhat of an unhealthy one in the U.S. because oftentimes I think we wrap our identity so much in what we do for a living. So we have, we have like a, a title, you know, I am mom or dad. Well, then we become empty nesters and I am a bus driver. Well, then what happens when, if your identity is all wrapped up in that, what happens when you can't do that anymore? So I think people naturally lose their sense of purpose. And traditionally in senior housing, it's segregated, so to speak, based on age and acuity, right? Depending on the care setting. And so you have one kind of group of people that are all very similar, having similar frailties. And and there's some good aspect of that. But what I saw is just like the sense of purpose. People don't have really a reason to wake up in the morning, they don't feel. And so what 
What we started doing early in my career was just started trying to bridge the gap, so to speak, between the older and the younger generation and remind the older generation that as long as they are here on the earth, breathing in spite of their frailty, in spite of all their heartaches, emotional hardships that they've probably endured throughout their long life, they still have a purpose. And what we started seeing is when we, we would get creative in reminding and encouraging our residents and, and helping them find some purpose, then it's like all of a sudden they had a reason to wake up in the morning. And, you know, I, again, I'm not that smart of a guy, but you can see when something starts to tick with people and depression and anxiety start going away and they just seem happier. So the more and more we did that, the more that we wanted to focus on trying to create a system and a community where old and young people live and work together. Simply going back in many ways to the way we used to be back in the little house on the prairie days, there was not an institutional community where it's like, okay, you're 87 year old and you have two needs of uh, activities of daily living assistance. You go stay over there in the old person's home. We'll come visit you maybe on Christmas. So I don't know at what point in society we made that transition that that was acceptable. But I think that's something that at its most basic form, we try to kind of break, break down the barriers and the walls on not only in the programming that takes place right between people, but also in the physical plant. So we don't have it figured out yet, but that was one big pillar of Solenity's purpose and why we formed the brand. I heard you say too in the other interview that one of your biggest challenges was like everyone else in senior care staffing and, you know, building that team. Are you still trying to bring in childcare and children into the senior facilities? Yeah, absolutely. And it's actually been really exciting. I can see a marked change and some initiative around that, even outside of our company in the industry, which is exciting because we went from talking about it to some people trying it and starting to see the value. And I think, you know, sometimes it takes a while to see a hard line to the bottom line of those kind of investments, like it does with a lot of other benefits that we may look at packaging in for our team members, but it's certainly starting to become something that you're seeing. And all of our new communities that we're designing have some aspect of that. If we don't have the property or the ability to or landlocked and can't provide that on campus, then we try to provide that as an extra benefit and partner. There's a lot of great daycare programs and kids care programs and, you know, preschools in most areas that you can partner with. I just love that idea. And I actually remember in middle school going and singing and performing at a nursing home. And it was actually where my grandmother, my great grandmother was, but it does. I mean, it brings everybody out of their room. They, they love does. the youth. They love performing. They love little kids. I would imagine that it would be hard during COVID, but I, I think it's a great idea. Our industry has been hit pretty hard by COVID, probably not even as much as some people really think COVID itself as far as just all these people sick and dying and so forth. Our industry has not been hit with that as nearly as hard as what we call the nursing home industry. But, you know, like the general population, we have a frail population that we serve and there's been 
obviously the pandemic going on, but I would say probably our biggest challenge has just been the isolation of people. And, uh, you know, I, I think we're still just beginning to see the fallout from all the isolation you know, the increased depression. And and quite honestly, I think there was probably a, you know, I, I haven't seen too many statistics. It's hard to track it. And you don't even know if the statistics you're seeing, how, how factual they are these days. It's hard to really dig down and get what's really happening, except what you see with your own two eyes, right? And um, here with your own ears. But I know there's been a lot of folks that I feel like have, have just given up because, you know, they've been isolated from the world. And they were already isolated in many cases. You didn't get many, many family members didn't get as many visits as others. And then when you lock them out and don't allow anyone to come in, it's really tough. Very, very tough. Would you say you're wanting to help that generation still feel like they have purpose is from your spiritual upbringing? I think so. You know, it's amazing. I think walking along in life, what's that phrase they say that you can't see the forest for the trees or something like that. So essentially you're walking along in life and these things are either happening to you or these opportunities are coming up. They seem very random to you or they, they did to me and it didn't make any sense. And I felt very directionless, even in my college years, I didn't really know what I wanted to study. I just knew I needed to get a degree. That's what everybody was telling me. Right. And so, but now in hindsight, when I look back, I think the great values that my, my parents, even on the spiritual side instilled in me, I find myself, the older I get drawing back to that probably unintentionally, just kind of naturally going back to my core of, of what I was taught and how I was raised. I can also see that there was a lot of things. I'll give you an example. I never again thought I would be doing what I'm doing today uh, at any scale, and especially not in senior living. It was not even on my radar. I didn't know what it was. But when I think back and think to my dad, he was abandoned, uh, him and his brothers as a child by his mom and dad left, and they were raised by his handicapped grandmother without running water, without even an in-house plumbing, no electric. And my dad's not that old. So he was not raised during the depression days, but he was raised like he was in the depression days. I remember hearing stories. He would talk uh, about his Grammy. That's what he called her. So I would hear these great stories. And then later in my life, I remember my dad, one of the churches he was ministering in, there was a widow there and she had no one to care for her. And we ended up adopting her. And now I'm like, that was so weird. But at the time it wasn't weird because it was just who my dad was. So we literally, my dad built on an extension of our home, invested all this money to take care of this lady that was no relation to us whatsoever. And I remember we even moved her when we moved from Georgia to North Carolina, he moved her with us so she could be with us. And so we cared for her until she died. And so there was things like that that happened all during my childhood that now when I look back, I'm like, I was being prepared to do what I'm doing today, right? But at the time, I did not know that. So you never know what the path that you're on today is preparing you for, you know, tomorrow, I guess, is the the logic of that story. That is an incredible story. And also like, how could you not want to go back to a purposeful living after having that example, even if you rebelled from it at a certain point, 
totally. when you saw something like that, that is just completely extraordinary. Yeah. Well, and I'll tell you, you know, most of I, it, when I really boil it down to, you know, why did I rebel, you know, and, and that sort of thing, I think so much of my rebellion was just geared towards, I remember I used to use the term hypocrites, like I'm tired of these hypocrites. They, you know, they're judging people, they're doing all this kind of stuff. And, and so it was very much, I had a reason that I could blame somebody that was being acting a certain way for my actions. And finally, it just dawned on me. I'm like, I'm the hypocrite. Here I am telling everybody else that they're this and they're that. And I'm I'm actually the one judging. And so, you know, it, it was really a, a cool transition for me. Uh, it was tough to live through, but kind of mending that fence with my parents. And now as a parent, it scares me to death to think, oh my gosh, my kids are about to hit those teenage years. I hope they weren't me. I hope that they don't pull a Josh because it would just break my heart. So hopefully, you know, the values that we instill in our kids, even if they depart and obviously choose their own paths, which we want them to, at some point, the the core beliefs of who they are and their sense of purpose will will come to fruition uh, in their their little lives. Oh, I just, I love that so much. And I truthfully have to check myself still as far as judging people online, to be honest. But look, I will say, and you know this as well, because you're producing content 365 days a year and encouraging people to do it. Whoever tells their story and puts themselves out there should get credit for that because it's brave. It is. Yeah. It's, you have to be a little vulnerable. And you have to be willing to to take the, the criticism and quite honestly, the the judgment, you know, people are going to pass judgment and one way or the other for good or bad. And you don't really have a lot of control over that. How did your parents stay loving and how did they make room for your feelings? That's a great question. My parents were strong, strong to discipline. Let's say that. As a matter of fact, me and my dad laugh about it now. And yes, I was a child that was spanked. And I say I probably needed more spankings than I got. But, you know, we've we've looked back and and laughed and, and thought, you know, if he had it to do over again, there would be things he would obviously do different. But I never, ever once, even when I was in the heat of my complete rebelling against my parents and I left home at age 16, just went totally wayward. I never once doubted that my parents loved me. I mean, I knew that they loved me. I didn't like them very much at the time. I loved them if I would admit it, but I didn't like them very much, but I never, it, it was a very unconditional love. So I, I want to distinguish between two things that really my parents showed love. They never condoned what I was doing, like the things that they believed was wrong and the things that I definitely was doing that was wrong. They never condoned it, but they also loved me through it. So there was a very much an unconditional love there, a love that I think you really can't understand. I couldn't anyways until I had kids. It's like, man, I don't, I can't ever imagine anything these kids could do that I would not still love them. Right. And until you are a parent, I can't say there was anybody else in the world that I would ever say that about. You know, you think of the person you're closest to and you could still think, oh, if they did that, then it's, oh, I'll cut them off forever. I can't imagine a situation with my kids. And so for me, you know, not to get spiritual, 
but my particular faith, that's a demonstration. My dad and my mom's demonstration of that kind of unconditional love was a demonstration and an example of like the faith I have, the spiritual faith. It's a very unconditional love. So there's nothing really I can do to earn it. And it's not conditional based on whether I succeed or fail. So I guess when you get to that point and you have that kind of relationship and realize that you're in that kind of relationship, it, to me, that's what true love is. That's that's an unconditional love that really, I can definitely hurt the relationship, but I, I can't ever make them stop loving me. So Wow. Well, that's amazing. And I think all kids really would love to feel that way. Yeah, it's sad. You know, it's sad that a lot of kids don't have that. Uh, it's really heartbreaking. I wasn't a really, I was very sheltered now in hindsight, I can look back and say my parents sheltered me from a lot of things. And even though we never had much money, I never knew we didn't have much money. I took a year off of college to go crazy story. I took a year off college to go around the US leading a group of singers and performers I'm not a singer and performer, but don't ask me how I got into this, but I, I did it to try to get a, a year of my college paid for. There was a scholarship for it and I was poor. I went on the road with, I was the oldest of all these nine college students and we went around and we would sing at churches and universities. We would do these concerts and take up like these, these offerings, the gifts that people would give us to then we would take that money. And we would go do character education assembly programs in elementary schools, public schools all across the country. And we got, I would say, stuck with, as I phrased it, doing the Northeast during the winter. And I got to, we would go in and we would eat an elementary school prepared breakfast and lunch. We would do two schools a day. So set up, tear down. So I'd eat with these kids. And to hear some of their stories was just absolutely so eye-opening that in this modern day world, we live here in the U.S. as blessed as we all are to think that that kids grow up in some of the circumstances in some of our biggest cities like they do. It's, it's really tragic. That's amazing, though. It's such a young age that it affected you like that, like that you were able to feel it. I think anybody would have felt it, you know, when you, I'll tell you, you know, one story I was up in, I guess it was right outside of Washington, DC, we were in a public school and I sat down and I was complaining about this elementary school lunch to my team. And I was like, these kids are sitting with us. I'm like, how do y'all eat this crap? This is terrible. You know, like, don't eat that. That's going to kill you. So I was griping about it rather loudly. And I remember I just pushed mine away. And this little kid beside of me must've been like in third grade. He said, Hey man, you going to eat that stuff? And I'm like, no, and you better not eat it either. You're going to die if you eat that, you know? And he's like, well, I'll take it. He's like, I've got a bag. I'll put it in my bag. And I'm like, are you serious? You're going to eat that stuff. He's like, no, I'm not. He's like, I'm going to take it to my mom. And I said, your mom, does your mom want to eat that stuff? And he's like, oh yeah, this would probably be all she eats today. And I, so I started talking to him. The guy, the kid goes to live under a bridge. So he gets to school. He goes and lives under a bridge and takes his mom food off of other people's plate. And that's a story after I talked to the principals of the school. And I told him, I'm like, do you know this kid doesn't have anything to eat? And his mom, and they validated that. And it was a true story. And they're like, actually the number of meals that the school system in that district sent home to families that can't afford meals was mind-boggling. And I mean, I never knew that my tax dollars went to those kind of things. You know, I was just thinking it was going to just education, but it was a, a, a major eye-opening experience to me. One, how bad some people have it and one, how blessed 
I am even to this day. I would say, I mean, honestly, that kind of translates over into senior care. Well, it, I think it probably does. I mean, there's, it's, it's caring for humans, right? And we, we all have our issues. We all have our frailties from the day that we're born, we're aging. So it's just dealing with in senior living, you're just de- dealing with one section, you know, of the aging population, just like elementary is dealing with this section of the aging population. They have their own issues. You know, they've got to be taught and they've got to be learned. They've got to be cleaned up. They've got to be, then you look at the seniors and many times they've got to be reminded. They've got to be cleaned up. They've got to be cared for. The aging spectrum, I care for just one small portion of that spectrum, but we all have our issues. It's it's humanity, right? Yeah. I am curious about what happened when you were 16. So I was very rebellious. I had really worked hard to build my friendship network. Once again, had just moved to a high school. I had just achieved the starting second base position on the baseball team, which was a big deal then, you know, and you were a jock, you know, like the girls liked you, you know, you like you had all your things. I was checking all the little boxes and stuff. My dad had been in between kind of his, his missions, his churches, and we were living in Tennessee at the time. And I remember he said he was going to move us to San Diego, California. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We're not going to San Diego, California. And so I basically just put the line in the sand and I'm like, no, I'm 16. I am not moving one more time for any of these church people. I've had it with these church people making us move and I've had it with you listening to these church people. So I just basically totally raised hell, went out there, you know, did all the things that a bad kid should do or not do with their parents, bad language, bad attitudes, had younger siblings at the time, was a super bad influence on them. So essentially I said I was leaving and I went and had nowhere to go, but I'm moved, you know, almost 3000 miles back across the country and lived in my grandparents' basement. They took me in. And so I was back to the older influences. My grandparents loved me through my rebellion, treated them like heck for several years as well, but they were very good to me. And I saw my parents maybe about once a year during those years. And then, you know, continued hardships early in my, uh, after high school, And once there was no one there, you know, my parents pretty much cut me off as far as no financial help. My parent, my grandparents were helping me. And I, and I suddenly realized that all these people, these friends and people outside of my family that I had kind of put my faith, my hope, my trust, my loyalty, all these tokens that I'd given them relationship tokens they didn't really give a crap about me. That led to the buddies that I thought would let me live with them on their couch. Like, no, man, my my girlfriend or my wife or whatever it was, we've got our own life. You go get your own. So it was like a lot of rejection. The ones that truly care about you unconditionally just keep, I, I can only imagine how painful it must have been for them to see me continue to make bad decision after bad decision. They just kept loving me through it. So we mended relationships and the school of hard knocks, long story short is I ended up getting a job in the most unlikely of places that I would have never wanted to work, never to sought out to work. And that really, I just had to start providing for myself. And so, you know, the responsibility 
layers started building and started mending my relationship with my parents and started getting my spiritual well-being and physical well-being and emotional well-being back together. And so probably around age 21, my wild oats, so to speak, started kind of running out and started getting my life a little bit back on track and still trying to get it on track today. You know, I don't have it all figured out by any stretch of the imagination. (laughs) The thing is, though, is it could have continued to go bad. Like you just don't know how things are going to work themselves out in the wash. Oh, a hundred percent. And I, I will say there was, there was things that I, you know, again, I'm a person of faith and I try not to like necessarily wear that on my sleeve or like, that's not a badge or anything. It's just what I believe in. And I, I do think there's definitely steps that are provided to us and ordained to us in life that we don't really understand at the time. You have choices, right? And you can choose to walk down the path that's opening for you or you can go another way. Thankfully for me, I had really not many options. I, I was having very small doors that to me just look like I've got to do this or I'm going to starve to death. But those doors ended up being huge doors. Like these were doors that, you know, you could barely see the light through them because if you imagine the biggest door you've ever seen at the biggest castle, even if that was on TV and they've got these giant hinges that you could just barely see a light coming through that. And it's like, maybe this is the door I should try to get into. But when that door swings open, it's got big hinges. What lays ahead there sometimes is much bigger opportunity than what you ever would have thought when it was just that tiny little light. Yeah. Can you talk about some mentors that have made a huge impact for you? Yeah. Well, obviously I've talked a lot about my dad. He's been a great mentor to me and I'm blessed to even have a dad present in my life. You know, that's not what a lot of people have these days. I'll tell you, you know, my first boss in senior living invested so much in me. And I just think, what was he thinking at the time? And and now I kind of look, looking back, I realized how much he, how little he paid me. And so I'm like, oh, I was actually, I was a pretty good deal. So I, I get it. I see why I was probably like the cheapest person he could get. So, but to, so if he's listening to this today, that's, I, I realize why you hired me. I'm the only one that would say yes, but essentially he invested a ton of time and energy in me. And I remember it was funny. I don't know why these little phrases stick out, but I remember I was in a meeting with him and I was way over my head. I was just listening because he was talking to the big wigs. I was just listening as the getting mentored. And he said, you know, after they left, he said, Josh, I'm going to make you the king of senior living one day. And at the time, I'm like, I don't even know what that means. But what I think and what how I take that is he was going to invest in me and help turn me into something where even though he was the boss, he was the owner. He wasn't necessarily just like, hey, you're going to do this for me. And this is for me and my company. He was actually pouring into me to make me a better leader, to teach me the values that it would take to make it in this industry. And so he was a huge one. There's been some residents that have been, and I don't really want to mention their names on here, maybe sensitive for some of their families, but I've had some residents that in some funny ways have kind of treated me like their grandkid, so to speak. And some of them were pretty hard on me. I can remember my first senior living job when I was opening my first community. And some of those old men and older women, they, you know, I, 
my face was about like it is right now, just a lot younger and not this gray in my beard, but I had a hairy face. You know, I've always kind of kept facial hair. They did not like that one bit. So one lady, she called me an angel with the dirty face and she would flirt with me, which was fun. I enjoyed that, but they would just invest in me and pour into me and sharing their stories. So I've had young mentors, old mentors, but my dad and my first boss were probably my two that just really stick out to me. I just love that. Oh my God. I wrote down an angel with a dirty face and king of senior living because both of those would make great titles. <laughs> oh man. Well, I'm definitely not king of senior living and I'm I'm definitely not an angel, but sometimes I do have a dirty face. That's probably the only truth right there. So Oh my gosh. Well, who would you say is the king of senior living? I mean, you might have some insight into that considering all of the people that you've uh, interviewed. Gosh, you know, it's very interesting. So senior living right now to me is at the most interesting time it's ever been in my 17 years. And the, the main reason that I think is because there's this passing of a mantle that is I'm starting to see happen. And that's what I mean by that is the the industry leaders that have really founded our industry as it is today, which has probably been over the last 25, 30 years, depending on whose textbook you read, they were the ones that, that built the industry. And they're starting to see this transition between the greatest generation and the next generation, which is the boomer generation. And there's so many differences in product type, preference type between the greatest generation, which is my grandparents and my parents, the boomer generation. And I think so many of them are at the point in their career where naturally they're ready to not necessarily start another new adventure and completely retool their aging out, so to speak, of their their career. And there's this whole generation of, I would say, young leaders that are so different than the old leaders. And you're seeing this kind of weird friction happen between them where some are willingly working together and others are kind of like the, the power pull going on. And I honestly feel like I'm just somewhere in the middle because I'm not like the youngsters and I'm not really the oldsters. And so I feel like I kind of have a unique perspective right now. And I do get to see and talk to so many awesome leaders and influencers in our industry. And it's fun because I just act like, you know, I'm just the, the host. I don't have to be smart. I, I just have to ask questions. So I don't know who the king is. There's definitely some young influencers that at least by their social media presence, you would think they were the king of industry for sure. Well, I did hear that you are starting a new podcast with James Lee, right? Well, so we did start a podcast with James Lee. James Lee is definitely a huge thought leader in our industry. I can still remember the first conference that I met him at, and I thought we interviewed him on our podcast. And at that point, nobody knew who James Lee was. And I just remember thinking, dude, you are so smart. Like, how did you get so smart? And he just is a very deep thinker, very intentional. And so James is doing a lot of different things now. He's launched his own podcast. Uh, I'll give him a plug level up. He does a great job with it. And he's actually now helped to found, I think that which was a bucket list for him. It happened sooner than what he thought it would, a senior living company, a community. And so he and his partners have done that. And I can't remember the name off of it, but he's doing a great job. He's definitely a thought leader in our space. And there's a lot of guys and girls just like James Lee that are coming up. And it's very, 
encouraging. And I think with people like that, you know, our aging population and all the challenges that are going to come over the years to come are in good hands with people like them for sure. I also think it's interesting. I know you did an event this year with Jesse Itzler, and I heard you say the reason you brought him in was because he was from outside of the industry and you felt like he would give an outside perspective and be able to speak to things like trust, which is really important in senior care. Yeah. So we had a great first event. We we're going to be having our second one. The first one sold out. We're going to do our second one this summer. We're really excited. But yeah, so like any industry, I think you've got your your traditional folks that kind of are the, in the speaker circuit in that industry. And, you know, our industry is like a lot of verticals where you've got all these, it's kind of the same people you end up seeing. And if you're not really, uh, I think this is true in life too. If you're not really seeking out information outside of your little echo chamber, it becomes just like that. that. I mean, it's just the same message over and over. And so you're not really open to learning and information and growth. And, and honestly, so Jesse would be probably one of the furthest personality types that people would think senior living when you think Je Jesse Itzler, right? That's not what you think. And that was one of the, the reasons. And plus he had ties. So if you follow Jesse, he's been pretty open and transparent about his family's struggle with aging family and Alzheimer's and all of that. So we knew there was kind of a simple tie to the aging pop population and the sympathy towards that because he has experienced it. And so, yeah, I'll tell you, Jesse ended up <laughs> crazy story. So our first event, it's a one day, it's a 24 hour event. Jesse Itzler, everybody amped and excited. His agent calls us at 1130. He's supposed to be on the stage, I think at like four. And they say, we got bad bad news. And I'm like, no, I don't want to hear bad news. We're in the middle of our event. Jesse's very ill. He is not going to be able to make it. We scrambled. You would not believe it, but we ended up having Scott Hamilton. I don't know if you've heard of Scott, but he was the gold medalist. Yes. The backflipper. Yeah, absolutely. And he delivered the best keynote that was the most relevant keynote that we could have never planned it to be that perfect. And I remember everybody coming up and being like, we couldn't wait to hear Jesse, but you could not have had a better keynote. And it was like, man, again, that was just a provisional thing that we can't take credit for it, but it ended up working out great. And we hope to have Jesse at one of our future events for sure, because it, he's such an awesome speaker and motivator. Oh my God, do things just never go as planned when I'm telling you're you. putting together an event it does not matter how much you plan. Oh, I know. I think we had every contingency plan except that one in place. And it's like, surely your keynote's not going to, and, and then you wouldn't think it would happen on the same day. It'd be like uh, something happened a couple of days before and you've got a little bit of time to scramble, but no, we had three hours to fix that. It just, it worked out great. So great event and look forward to this one this year. Plus this is like an A-lister, like not cheap. 
Oh, no, no, no. These are big time dollars. I mean, so this whole, the whole podcast, we didn't, we had never even done a podcast before. I didn't even listen to podcasts when we started this five years ago. Our first year, we bootstrapped the budget. Me and Lucas just funded everything out of our own pockets. And, you know, five years later, not in my wildest imaginations would I ever have thought something, anything that I started, I would be booking Jesse Itzler as the talent. Yeah, this, those guys, they earned it, but they're expensive for sure. <laughs> yeah, I want to talk about Bridge the Gap a little bit <laughs> and how you used to attend industry events and you felt like you wanted to share knowledge that wasn't being spread in the industry. I love that. Yeah. So, I mean, the short version is I was blessed to be able to speak on some panels and go to these conferences as a C-suite leader for most of my career. You know, I remember the moment about six years ago, me and my buddy Lucas, we showed up in Chicago in the Sheraton's beautiful hotel in a sea of blue suits. And I remember thinking, you know, one, I look really different. And as soon as I walk in with my backwards hat and my, you know, jeans and blazer, they, I can see security sizing me up. Like you're not, you're not supposed to be here. And I'm like flashing my badge, like, no, I paid, I'm here, you know, I'm, I'm okay. And so, I, but I remember thinking these people are all so brilliant, right? They're so smart, but generally they would all go and pay all this money to go listen to themselves talk in their echo chambers. And then the communities, all these communities across the country where all the work's actually being done, nothing's changing, like nothing's being done. So I'm like, Lucas, how do we take their information and completely distribute it to where it's free? It's open to the public. And so he's like, I think we could do that with a podcast. Like, you know, we could probably figure that out. And so we literally just kind of developed the brand. The brand tells the story where we're trying to bridge that information gap and take the conference information, all that thought leadership to whoever wanted it and make it free. And so that's what we did. Our three pillars are inform, educate, and influence the industry. And it's never been about me and Lucas. It's always about the thought leader in, in the middle of us. And five years later, it's a network of podcasts that we produce even for other people that live on our, our network. And then we just launched our first magazine, which is awesome. And then we're now doing events. We've got a big event in Dallas here soon. Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders and speakers and concert. And so we're, we're touring all these cities and getting to do some really cool stuff and meet people not in my wildest imagination I ever would have dreamed I would have met and especially not in senior living. So it's been a pretty cool ride. It's so incredible. What mistakes have you made or what other Jesse Itzler moments have you had? Like there had to have been some. Oh my gosh. So everything that I have done has been difficult. And a lot of the stories, to be honest with you, I haven't shared publicly because maybe for a lot of reasons, maybe I don't want people to know that, that we almost failed. Maybe it's to protect those organizations. You know, I don't know, but you know, I'll tell, tell you just, I've had tons of failures, but there's been a lot of things to overcome. One of the big things that I guess challenges is Pedal for Alzheimer's, which was an event. I started an event, Pedal for Pat. Uh, and I can remember in that first year, Pedal for Pat, I was going to ride 1,098 miles to honor the legacy of Coach Pat Summit and her 1,098 career wins. And so I had branded this event, gone to the Pat Summit Foundation. This was right after she had died with Alzheimer's. And I said, I'd like to do this. So they got on board with it. January of 2017, we launched Pedal for Pat. And I was going to ride my bike from Knoxville to Key West, which was 1,098 miles over the course of 12 days. 
And I was going to do this later that fall in October. The funny thing about this was, so when sports, this went to Sports Illustrated USA Today, ESPN around the horn in March of that year when the press release went out. And when the sports reporters called me, they said, Josh, tell us about your professional cycling career. And this was like in March of 2017. I said, you got the wrong guy. I said, I haven't even got my bike yet. You know, I just ordered it and it should be here sometime in a few weeks. And they're like, wait a minute, this story just got extra crazy. You've never even ridden a bike and you're riding a thousand ninety eight miles in October. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to train really hard for it. So that's not the, the most interesting thing about this story. Everything came against me that year to do that. So this was originally supposed to be an event just for the Pat Summit Foundation. Everything was going great. And all the press, we had team members, sports stars, professional cyclists all going to join us. And about June, which would have been just a few months before the event, I'd already raised for the foundation a lot of money. And they came to me and they said, you know what? We can't do the event. And I said, what do you mean we can't do the event? Like all these people are committed. All these people have given. They're like, it's too dangerous. It's gotten too public. You're going across all these states. It's dangerous. You're going to be on open roads, blah, blah, blah. And so I remember that was a moment where I was either going to have to complete the mission and take on all the liability myself or disappoint all these people. And so I chose in basically a 24 hour period, I made the commitment and I set up a little LLC, took up all the risk myself and self-funded to keep the thing going just so, you know, we didn't disappoint people. And come to find out some really awesome people heard that story, surrounded the cause and sponsored the expenses so I didn't have to pay for it out of pocket. And we ended up completing the ride and we did it in 11 days instead of 12 in hurricane force winds and we ended up giving a check to the pat summit foundation for a hundred thousand dollars at the center court and uh, the coolest thing is i never got to meet pat i was just a fan and so you know some of the lessons that i have learned through hardships have been my best lessons but you know that was one that i learned my dad would never let me quit I wanted to quit many times on a lot of things growing up and uh, he would never let me quit. I would say that's something that going back to my value set that influenced that decision. And that was a turning point, you know, now pedal for Pat is now pedal for Alzheimer's. It's a 501 C three has a board. We have ambassadors in 11 States and we've given hundreds of thousands of dollars away. It's a complete volunteer organization. Nothing I've learned that nothing that is worth doing comes easy. Every single thing we could talk all night long. Every single venture I've done has been a battle. Nothing. It's not, it's not been easy. And so if you have as an entrepreneur, if you have any quit in you, you're going to fail for sure. So it's just, you can't quit. I feel like that message was spiritual right there. And I swear to God, my dad has never let me quit either. Yeah. Well, he's a good dad because I think I didn't answer your question because you you wanted to know my failures. And I would say I, I feel like I fail all the time in parenting because, you know, I think back and I, I honestly compare myself to my dad because I think the world of what he did with me and things and dang, I screwed up again. And there has been some times when I've already let my kids quit some things. And then I've, I've thought about it and I'm like, ah, oh, 
I can't let them give up that easy. I've got to let them finish their commitments. I've got to make them finish what they start. Um, they've got to finish that commitment, whatever it is they made. If it's the season of Little League and they want to throw their glove down and quit and walk off the field in the middle, no, no, suck it up, buttercup. You committed. You wanted to play this. We bought the baseball bat. We bought the cleats. Let's finish out this game. Let's finish out this season. And then we'll reevaluate. But this is what you committed to. So there's probably parents out there right now thinking that is bad parenting advice. So could be wrong, but that's my journey as a parent. So oh, I can just relate to everything that you've said. Is there anything that you would like to ask my dad? <laughs> oh, man, I have flashbacks of some bad, especially in my rebellious years, bad moments with female dads. And so, you know, I, I just want to say, yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's all I need to say is whatever you need me to do, sir. I will respect your daughter and hope I haven't offended her today. So no, I have nothing to ask your dad at all, except maybe just parenting advice. Oh, that's great. That's so good. Okay. Well, what is coming up next for you? Is there anything that you would like to promote? So for us, we are actually getting finally our, our feet really off the ground on the development front. So the next big announcements will be developments that are coming out of the ground, which we're really excited about. So for a self-funded company like, like me, not coming from a wealthy family at all, I've just worked really hard in the industry and saved all my nickels to be able to do 30, $35 million developments. And above that, it's for me, it, it, it feels really good to be able to to do that. So can't announce those yet, but there's a couple of big announcements coming to the industry that we'll launch hopefully by the summer. And yeah, but that that's it. We got our VIP Ignite event coming up this summer. It'll be our second one. So if there's anybody that out there in your world that doesn't even do senior living, but very curious, it's a great place to come and meet the top 200 influencers. And just a great bunch of people to network with. So we'd love to have people. It is invitation only, but you can request an invite. It'll sell out really quickly. I am so proud of everything that you've accomplished. Wow. I cannot wait to hear what my dad has to say about this. He's going to love this episode. Well, I hope so. I hope I don't disappoint your dad. <laughs> now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. This is your interview with Josh Chris. Yet sounds very familiar on some of the advice that he got that you get from your father. And that is where no matter what you're looking to ascertain in life, it's nice to have somebody in your corner that doesn't let you quit anything and makes you take every bit of your essence, see if you can achieve on whatever your dreams are. Doesn't everybody need something like that? Oh yeah, I knew you would like that. Did like that. And even though he gave his father a hard way to go and traveling all over the place. Isn't it ironic also how I know so many people, and I think you've run into some, that when you become like 16 years old and you're moving all around the country or you're moving or there's different issues in the family, that sometimes a 16-year-old thinks that they know everything. They want to be with their friends. They want to do their own thing. They don't really want to listen to authority. They're very re rebellious. And they think, that they can run their own show, even at 16 years old. He was not moving across the country, was he? Nope. But then again, difference that he had, I have as well, where I was very, very close grandparents, where I also respected people's opinion that has lived lives, especially listening to the stories and the hardships that they had to overcome, as he would call it, the great generation. And when you have 
the respect of the history of where you come from and from other people's histories and experiences, and you take them to heart, that has a lot of meaning in your life. And there's a lot of people that just don't get it and don't, fortunately, haven't had maybe even the opportunity to understand the depth of that perspective and how important it is. And what I also love about the discussion is just like our show, where we're trying to incorporate three generations in your story, where your children are involved, where you're involved, and I'm involved, and even your great-grandma and great-grandpa have been involved in your show. That's four generations. That interaction of understanding a generational legacy, and it doesn't have to be money, but compassion and wisdom and experience. And when it's all tied in, then we understand the value of life and how important it is to have people participate and be encouraged all along the way that a life is valuable right till you stop breathing at any age. And I think that in this generation anyway, and there's a lot of people with a different philosophy than that, where if a person doesn't have enough money or they don't have the right health or they are on the wrong side of the tracks, that they just are ju- just a statistic. And it doesn't matter that their life does not have that much meaning. Well, that can be very depressing. The other thing that comes up is that when you isolate people and you don't have them participate, even going to school and working and showing that they can be vibrant and doing things and staying in motion and growing and developing, you don't do those things. You also wither away and die. He's trying to incorporate all of those experiences and been also very fortunate because he had a mentor. He teases you that he was te- this fellow was teaching him the business of the healthcare system because he was willing to work for less. But it's really not true. This fellow paid him, spent a lot of time and effort and money. What did that cost a person's time? An owner of a nursing homes or a healthcare system, and he really made him his apprentice. He made him his protege. That's invaluable. Not everybody gets those opportunities. Isn't that similar to a line that a young kid that was shoveling shit at Churchill Downs for one week and he quit? He says to me, Mr. Friedman, there's just no future in shoveling shit, but I'll do it if I could see just a hint of a possibility that there's a future. I would do anything to have a future and learn the business. And that crazy line gave a person a job in my company where been with me for 30 years, thick and thin, and also learned like I did hands-on, just about every operation in the business. Yeah, that reminds me of him saying, you know, his father took in that woman that needed a place to live into their own home. And then that, he feels like looking back, set the stage for him working in senior care. Well, and look at the example living at home, but also where I witnessed my parents taking in every parent, every parent that they had, where my grandfather, my grandmother, on both sides of the family, my mom and dad took in. It was their honor and privilege. My my dad didn't even take a tax credit on on them. You're talking about something that I also enjoyed at the very end. Says, what it comes to, you want to ask a question to your father. What's he say? He says, well, I do know that when you're talking about the girl's father, yes, sir. And that's respect. That is what you call a person who has come full circle and understanding that your wife is an important part of your life and her parents are just as important to him as the lady that he married, that he wants to respect where she came from. I think that's wonderful. And that's the way it should be. 
thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 